Welcome to the Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Banker Midweek. This week, your editors are myself, Liz Lumley, and Barbara Pianese, who's just back from Philibon in Miami. We'll hello. Be, hello. Hi. We'll be hearing about that very soon. Uh, and we are joined by our special guest, Marta Krapinska. You got it right. Yes. <laughs> uh, who is an industry legend and a co-founder of Cure 8, which we'll be hearing more about very soon. So as our listeners know, the Banker Midweek is our weekly discussion of stories live on the Banker site and in newsy bits that will influence future stories. So, you know, we cover a lot of ESG and sustainability issues, and we're going to be having a big COP28 special coming out this week. So I wanted to start off asking a little bit about your startup, Marta. <laughs> so uh, what is it and what do you hope to achieve? Um, thanks so much, Liz, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Mm. Um, so, yes, curate. Um the science is unequivocal that the most important thing is decarbonization. However, when we think about net zero, the net in net zero is what do you do with those emissions that you can't curb or reduce further? And that's what we do and that's where we come in. We work on carbon removals, which is a new industry emerging to become a trillion dollar worth um, that invests in technologies that actively sequester carbon from the sky. So you've all heard about carbon offsets, protecting carbon sinks or reducing carbon emissions. But what we do is we back technologies, uh, anything from soil carbon, biochar, direct air capture that everybody's been hearing about, these exciting sky hoovers that pull air in, separate carbon dioxide and put it deep under underground. So we help, as, as, as in the name Curate, we're curating the existing carbon removals ecosystem. We're building portfolios of carbon removals that we sell to clients. And we also use them to securitize debt into emerging suppliers of carbon removal to stimulate both demand and supply. We need to build an industry twice the size of oil and gas in about five years. Mm. So it's a very exciting challenge that requires all of the money and innovation in the world. No, no, I agree. I think that's a big thing to look at the, the financing and, you know, it's always follow the money. <laughs> Indeed. So who is this aimed at? Um, so in principle, very soon it will be every organization that has a net zero target. I mean, increasingly, actually, the UK is a great is a great place to build a business like this because we're the first country that has a legal definition of net zero, which is to reduce emissions by 90%. And then if you want to claim net zero, you have to remove durably the remaining 10. Um, we have so far sold to a, a, a very wide range of, of clients. Our first clients were the royal family. We removed emissions <laughs> from the Queen's uh, Jubilee pageant and the funeral. We uh, put on the first carbon-removed concerts on the, at the O2. We've worked with the London Marathon, so we have a, an events thesis that links to the fact that awareness and trust are, like in fintech, uh, very much in climate is the same issue. We need to breed awareness of this new category of technologies. So we have this sort of major events um, uh, approach, but we also work directly with corporates. So every large organization is going to have to commit to reducing and removing their emissions, and, and that's where we come in. Yeah. No, it's interesting. You started working with the royal family. I think a lot of people commented that uh, the king, you know, uh, in the opening speech, uh, spoke about things the government is doing that he might not necessarily personally <laughs> agree with. Um, but coming up very soon is, is we mentioned before, COP28 um, in the Gulf. 
What do you expect to hear from the event this year? Yeah. So, I mean, we're all talking about, you know, according to all the IPCC reports, you know, decarbonization is key. It is not happening fast enough. So we're not necessarily on target right now to hit um, 1.5, which is also why we need removals to buy ourselves time. But largely, I think we're expecting debates over phasing out of fossil fuels. We're very much looking forward to that. Um, obviously, last year's COP was very focused on the global south. So I'm hoping for a new climate damage fund conversation for for the global south. And actually, again, looking at my industry, um, we're expecting for carbon removals to feature more prominently um, as, as sort of the, the missing element that's going to keep us under, under 1.5. So both myself and my co-founder, Dr. Gabriel Walker, will be at the conference. So I expect it to be a very busy few days. Mm. Oh, excellent. So now I'm a big collector of um, funky startup names. <laughs> so your company is spelled C-U-R-8. So yeah, please please talk me through the name. <laughs> so um, uh, somebody once asked me, why, why are the names so funky? And I just referred them to check out GoDaddy or Google Domains and just see the price of URLs. Sometimes it's really as simple as this, but no, Curate it sort of started from curating the carbon removals industry, so us providing the due diligence and being able to show the difference in quality and being able to, to build mixed portfolios that manage risk. Um, but also um, eight, the infinity symbol, we're hoping to be able to, st to stick around as a species for a little bit longer than, you know, 100 years from now. It also takes the sunlight eight minutes to come uh, to travel from the sun to the earth, and obviously part of the reason for climate change is that it's not reflected um, um, well enough. Um, so, uh, so yes, that's uh, that's us. It also uh, visually, CUR8 looks a little bit like CURB. And again, we're super committed to decarbonization being the most important thing and then carbon removal only being the solution for the emissions that we cannot otherwise abate. Excellent. So, Marta, now you're going to stick around and have some comments on some stories. Fabulous. Soon. But next, I really wanted to turn to Barbara. So you've just come back from Miami and the annual uh, Felibon uh, uh, event. I'm sure that some of you on thebanker.com have seen your videos, the view, your view from Felibon. So I'm going to stay away from trying to ask you about the nightlife and bars and restaurants <laughs> you went to in Miami. And please give us the lowdown of what you saw. Yeah. So for uh, the people who are not aware, Felibon is the Federation of Latin American Banks. So this is like an annual event um, and um, uh, for banks in the region. And it's is mostly a networking event. So it's a it's a business event for all the banks that are looking for corresponding banking relationship, for lines of credit. Um, and I was talking to the organizer and they were quite amazed by the by the participation. So they had uh, 1,800 uh, people. Um, and they all were quite happy with uh, uh, with the business that they managed to uh, to close, um, but at the same time, I think also talking to uh, to bankers and to uh, you know to industry players, um, I think one of the the issue that was really discussed was the funding, of course, because with um, high interest rates uh, in the U.S., of course, uh, a lot of uh, investors in advanced economies uh, really would think twice. Uh, before committing and investing in uh, uh, in Latin America, um, at the same time, at the you know on the positive side, it is um, still a region where a lot of um, people, like insiders, are saying this is a region that has, has a lot of potentiality, um, and um, the fact that we have in other parts of the world we have a lot of like sanctions we have a lot of geopolitical risk this area is quite uh, shielded from that so there is still like investors still there is like um, funds to invest so there is still 
the need to uh, deploy capital. So it's, it's, a, it's a region that is well positioned. So I think it's a, the outlook is positive. Maybe the the issuance of that, they will banks will wait before raising, let's say, more capital. But because of the the condition, but I think uh, overall it is a, it is a positive environment. Mm. How is Miami? <laughs> my first time, so yeah, definitely great. Yeah, <laughs> Excellent, wonderful. So now we're going to move on to some stories that are on, as I mentioned before, thebanker.com. So this is a story uh, from one of our reporters, Alia Shibley. Uh, Digital first, human always. We, see, we hear this a lot. This is an interview with uh, Coventry Banking Society's uh, head of transformation. And they're really kind of, I thought this was an interesting story because we hear a lot about um, banks closing down bricks and mortar um, because everyone's going digital now, but building societies have such a close relationship with their client base that they're trying to build up um, a digital transformation but still keep their branch network of 64 branches going strong. So it's an interesting balance that they're looking through right now. How do you see this? Do you see this, um, Marta, about the, the uh, trying to keep that those branches on the high street? What are your views? I mean, I think first of all, I just I just love that phrase, "digital first, human always." It shouldn't be. It shouldn't mean that digital is anti-human. Mm. And and I really love the example of you know, if I asked you today, what do you think is the most successful and aspirational store anybody goes to? When you think about the Apple store, it has a incredibly human interface to it. Part of the reason why we like going there rather than just shopping online is because somebody is going to meaningfully provide us with support. And now and that's just buying your tech. Mm. And when we're thinking about the um, you know the, the, the experience of going to a bank and my, my background is very much in consumer fintech, first in money transfers and then in salary advances, the role that brick and mortar shops play in in the life of a local community, the way that it breeds financial literacy and access. I remember last time I went to a bank branch for some reason, I literally overheard a conversation with somebody advising um, a client on how to better budget to make ends meet. And we're all talking about the cost of living crisis. Mm. So I actually feel there's a huge opportunity in using digital to streamline and save costs where that makes sense, but actually still providing that interface. And especially when we think about certain people that are perhaps more excluded from 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 their data being visible to the banks, you know, how, what happens with migrants um, that mm. perhaps don't have a credit score that would just allow them to get access to banking services? What happens to older people? Uh, sometimes what happens to self-employed people? Most bizarrely, I was recently um, declined a credit card because according to the system, I was now self-employed because I'm the CEO of my own company and therefore uh, my certification of my own income wasn't good enough. But actually, if anybody spoke to me, that would probably, you know, mm. Maybe, maybe deem me creditworthy. So I actually love that we're not just um, racing to digital at all cost, but actually thinking about products and, and interfaces that are more fit for purpose. Mm. Are you seeing some of these these issues come up as well? What do you what do you? Yeah, opinion? I think uh, I see a lot of these slogans: digital first, human always. But I think the the reality is that. Um, you know, banks are closing branches at a really rapid uh, pace. And we are, I guess, uh, within a part of the population that is not really feeling the cost. Mm -hmm. But if we take into account that we are in a, in, advan in an advanced economy, and uh, so, I don't know, I don't have the statistics, but a really good portion of the population is, I don't know, over 50. Or if I just think about my parents, 
it's really difficult for them to access digital services. So digital services can, banking services can be as digital and as, e as easy as possible, but it will still be difficult to access for people of a certain age. So this is a major issue. And this is why I think also, um, you know, politicians, regulators need to make sure that there is still a presence on the ground. So they need to, I think, regulate and make sure that this is happening. Because I think we are... Um, you know, beside the slogans, we are going, I think, too far in terms of digitalization. Mm. This is my controversial opinion. <laughs> I'm sorry to. Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit more about because I know you mentioned Marta, you know about you know creditworthiness, and this is a, a little bit part of the next story. So this uh, next story is how can banks better support ethnic minority-led businesses. This is again by our reporter, Alia, who is on fire this week. Um, so at a glance, ethnic minority businesses face multiple barriers to assessing finance, like varying lending practices and challenging eligibility requirements. That greater representation of ethnic minorities across banks is needed to address these barriers, and banks should not focus solely on addressing inclusion, but look to the untapped potential of ethnic minority talent and business. So, I mean, banks dealing with small businesses at, at all is a, is a huge <laughs> issue. I once had a go at um, someone at a large UK bank who talked about how much they supported startups. And I said, well, when's the last bank account you gave one? Um, which is really, you know, what, what a lot of these businesses need. But it's there was a quote in the story that I quite liked um, from um, a business owner who said they picked the bank because they walked into the um, bank and they had people that looked like him there. And he thought, yes, mm. this is the type of place I want to do business. I'll stick with you, Barbara. You know, what, what did you take from this story? It is really a relevant topic, but I think it's, it's also quite a, a tricky one, right? Because mm. I think uh, as banks, as businesses try to kind of score different objectives, it's very difficult to, it's becoming, I think, incredibly difficult to be like inclusive, sustainable and uh, uh, think about minorities and uh, yeah, I think I'm not sure what is the the best way uh, if they need to adopt quotas, etc. But I think it's a it's a it's a tricky one to uh, to achieve. Mm. Yep. What do you think, Marta? So the thing about uh, the thing I love about that story, and I've done a, a whole lot of work in the sort of diversity and representation space, including running a fund that invests in underrepresented founders. Um, a lot of people look at diversity and inclusion as something that we should do because it's the right thing to do, and that is true. Mm. But it's also fundamentally good business. So when we think about another expert, uh, excerpt from that story that really struck, struck me was that the quarter of a million ethnic minority-led firms that contribute to the UK economy have a gross value add, a measure of productivity that matches or exceeds that of key domestic cities and sectors, and that that could quadruple if we provided better access to banking. Now, it's, you know, diversity, it's not just a good thing to do. It's also fundamentally good business. Mm. And I remember from my money transfer days, we did a lot of work on um, um, sort of looking at statistics of how the migrant populations perform in the UK, how many businesses they start. And that statistic is a few years old, but I believe 12% of Brits start companies, 14% of migrants, first or second generation, largely because migration in itself is a very entrepreneurial act. You have mm. to have the courage to pack a bag and go somewhere else and start anew. And that's what it takes to start a business. So I have a, a whole stack of business 
cards from Uber drivers saying, yeah. this is my business. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So it, it feels like, you know, not only are we are we doing wrong by, by these entrepreneurs, but also we're we're losing a lot of a lot of value, financial value on the, uh, on the table. There's a lot, a lot of money left on the table. That's what all, whenever we talk about women and, you know, it's the amount of money that's left on the table. Just, you know, <laughs> look through that cold, hard capitalist lens. Yeah. It's astounding. Um, yeah, going in. So the next story, we are that time of the podcast leaving the banker site. No, no. but we're not going far. <laughs> we're only going to the FT. Um, so this is a story about the open AI chief seeks new Microsoft funds to build super intelligence. And I'll tell you why I picked this story. Um, Sam Altman, who uh, was one of the founders of OpenAI of uh, Chat GDP fame, said uh, Altman splits his time between two areas, research into how to build super intelligence and ways to build up computing power to do so. And I, the reason why I put this on the story was because of you, Marta, because a conversation I've been having a lot with people lately is the amount of energy it takes <laughs> to... With computing power, with databases, with, you know, cloud computing. And as we're, you know, trying to create this, um, our future robot overlords, you know, how much carbon impact is this having on our planet? I mean, well, the carbon impact is huge. And again, there is an argument. We sort of, we've alluded to regulation before. I think it, you know, it really begs the question of how much is enough and maybe actually starting from trying to measure the impact that we're having because, you know, I'm all for Gen AI in principle. But I think, you know, having spent my entire life in technology, technology is a tool and what matters is what you do with that technology. So if this is Gen AI for Gen AI's sake, if this is, if this is super intelligence for the sake of us being able to drive innovation. I'm actually not that excited about it. But if mm. it is using Gen AI to attack such issues as our crisis of democracy, cost of living crisis, or actually being able to do predictive analytics on what's happening with climate change. I mean, the, the cost to real estate, financial assets, human life and human health is absolutely astounding. We, we know that changing climate and changing weather is impacting the way that we live, especially in the global south. If we could deploy these technologies to address these pressing issues, then I think one could argue that while we're still investing a lot of efforts and time into reducing the, the carbon emissions associated with, 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 with running computers, um, you know, that th this could be a reasonable effort. If we're doing it at the expense of the planet, then I really feel that it's it's frivolous. Mm -hmm. So I suppose, you know, this is, and having spent my whole life in fintech, uh, the last three years in climate tech have been fascinating because it's the first time in my life that I see that everyone is excited about regulation. Most, you know, I, I have a Give company. us more regulation. <laughs> I mean, indeed, I have I have 13 full-time staff and, 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 and you know, one, one, of, one of the first hires we were writing, you know, the, a job spec for was, was a policy director mm. because it's so important. So I think you're asking exactly the right question. When, when, when considering such innovation, I think somebody and preferably a regulator should be, should be querying what is the, the, the cost to the planet of, 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 of such practices? Mm. What are your views, Barbara? No, I agree with Marta with this. I think mm. we are not uh, really taking into account the, you know, the, the real environmental impact of technology because there is this narrative running about how much uh, it can be, we can be more efficient. So I think it's also interesting how yeah, we run this narrative without uh, taking into account the real data. Mm. 
Interesting. So now we're going to go to our final story. And the reason why I chose it is because this company has one of my favorite founders. Uh, so Pension B has moved into the black. This is also on the FT. Online pensions provider Pension B is approaching sustainable profitability on an adjusted, adjusted earnings basis, having moved into the black in October with assets under administration of almost four billion and the chief executive officer is Romy Sanova and she says we are delighted of course she is mm -hmm. delighted to have achieved sustainable adjusted um, beta profitability which delivers on the guidance mm -hmm. we gave investors at the time of our listing in April 2021 I just wanted to you know celebrate female founders in fintech that's all it was that's why I picked this story <laughs> I, know, I love it and, and by the way what a great to be in all, on an all female podcast is this the moment I say that I have an all female board in my company yeah I, yes, I, yep, I, am, yep. I am yet to meet can you please when, when you're interviewing other people can you, can you please be fishing because I'm looking for another one I so far mm. am the only one that I've, that I've met so I love this story. And, and, and aside from the female founder angle, I think, you know, we're all talking about how cash is king, especially in this economy. I find it incredibly frustrating that we keep on celebrating these mega raises. Somebody else raised a hundred million or a billion dollars, and that's great. But ultimately, what we're celebrating is somebody giving away executive control of their mm. company by selling a chunk of it and making a bunch of promises that they don't know if they can keep. Now, the fact that a company is growing sustainably and delivering value to its customers, the fact that, you know, I don't think we have very many London IPO success stories, and I think we mm. want for UKP that's important. Um, you know, pensions are not a very sexy space, but they're so important. Again, mm. cost of living crisis. So We're seeing so important. many yeah. pensioners needing to take up extra jobs because they cannot support themselves and lack of access to data and visibility of what their future from, from, from a financial perspective might, might look like and the problem that Pension B is solving. There are just so many elegant, powerful elements to this story. I love that you picked it. The it, It's interesting. The... Um, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of thinking that men and women are so different. There would be different CEOs. But, you know, when I when I used to run Startup Bootcamp, I remember being surprised that someone, everyone was so focused on, like you mentioned, raising funds, their exit policy. I had a conversation with one founder. I'm like, you're talking to me about your exit and you don't even have a product yet. It's like, <laughs> calm down. And I'm just wondering whether, you know, we've had Starling uh, went into profitability, whether women start businesses to you know, keep going, <laughs> employ people, run for more than a few years. Their, their, their eye isn't on the when is the exit going to happen, but how is this business going to grow? I don't know whether women are more. Do you I'm think? not sure about that. Not sure? Okay, <laughs> yes, sure. disagree with me. <laughs> I'm not sure. No, I think, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, I think, yeah, the fact that they are, that all, you know, people that have been, they are driven by uh, ambitions and mm. the fact that they, they want to grow the company. I'm not sure that there is uh this, uh, that big of a difference. Yeah, probably <laughs> if there was, if they were really uh, that keen, they would have founded. I don't know a cooperative. I don't know. Say, <laughs> yeah. To be honest yeah. with you, to be fair, like if you really want to create a real uh, impactful business that creates job, that's what you. Because then we know, uh, well, you know, if this company will be sold one day, they will be. They will need to create efficiencies, so people will be. Um, lost on the way, <laughs> sorry, to, but no, just but it's it's, it's of course it's, it's uh, that's how business work. But mm. I just yeah, I just don't think that women. I'm not talking about the specific. Yeah, case, I, but I think that yeah. women led businesses 
are necessarily that different. I mean, I think so. I <laughs> Sorry for the good. No, okay. yeah. So, so I mean, ultimately, it shouldn't be either or, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, ideally, we would have, and you know, there is also an argument knowing that what like sub two percent of our venture capital goes to all women mm-hmm. teams. Is this also just a function of you know selection bias? The 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 companies that we were able to look at and the data that we can collect would. Mm-hmm point to the fact, you know, these women had to go for revenues because perhaps venture capital wasn't that abundantly available. And that is a function of systemic issues point. and less yeah. women being, you know, having check writing powers. So so the, the, the data, we're probably not comparing apples with apples. Um, but I think the thing that we should celebrate is, I mean, ideally, we'd get to a place where um, you know that that venture capital and other asset classes or other other sources of capital are abundantly available to women and that actually executives, male or female, but it seems that there are some great success stories from women, just, you know, sign up to reasonable long-term business practices. The CPTO of Moonpig, who's an incredible woman, and I also just love a technical leader that's a woman, Mm. uh, talks about a story of uh, her talking to her dad about um, needing to, um, you know, restructure an organization she was in before, having to run it more tightly, having to go for profitability, and her dad going, hang on a second, so so you basically have to operate like a real business. And I think that's just, as a good reminder for all of us in tech, we had years of easy access to venture capital. Capital was cheap. Um, to, to point to success stories of companies that in this economy can succeed and deliver value to its customers. I think that's really important for me. Pension B is really solving a pressing problem for people and is able to make a good business out of it. That's 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 great. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited that we're using these as exemplars of 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 something that's exciting and, 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 and to be to be looked up to rather than just stories of people who, you know, have a have a great pitch and a great slide mm. deck and can raise a ton of cash but are they solving a problem that's necessarily most pressing for this society in this day and age um, and will they actually be able to deliver it looks like the pension b uh, team have delivered yep congratulations pension b romy and her team excellent so now we've come to the end <laughs> anyway thank you marta so much thank you barbara thank you. Uh, and thank you everyone for listening to the banker midweek thank you Thank you for listening to The Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more.